0: You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to GI Insights, where we cover the latest clinical issues, trends, and technologies in gastroenterological practice. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute. Your host for GI Insights is Professor of Medicine at University of Illinois at Chicago, Dr. Jay Goldstein.
1: What causes gastroparesis or delayed gastric emptying, and what are the best management tools available available? for the management of this condition. Joining us today to discuss gastroparesis is Dr. Linda Lee, Clinical Director of the Johns Hopkins Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology and Director of the Johns Hopkins Integrative Medicine and Digestive Center. Welcome, Dr. Lee. We're very pleased to have you here.
2: I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you.
1: Good. Well, let's just get right to the heart of the issue. Gastroparesis, what is it?
2: Gastroparesis is defined as delayed gastric emptying in the absence of any type of intestinal obstruction.
1: All right. Well, that's a very simple definition. Is it always part of major motility disorders or is there such thing as isolated gastroparesis?
2: There is definitely isolated gastroparesis, though it is not uncommon that patients with gastroparesis may report other gastrointestinal symptoms such as constipation.
1: That brings to mind the issue of irritable bowel syndrome. Is this just a slowed gastric emptying or slowed GI motility resulting in symptoms?
2: Well, it probably isn't. Actually, there is a fairly poor correlation between gastric emptying and symptoms. That's interesting because we actually define gastroparesis, however, by the presence of delayed gastric emptying.
1: Well, let's get into it. How does it affect individuals?
2: It can be very drastic. Many patients report a very poor quality of life as a result of having gastroparesis. Most of the patients we see, fortunately, can be managed as outpatients, but up to 5% will have symptoms that require them to repeatedly present to an emergency room with intractable nausea, vomiting, and dehydration.
1: Are the symptoms generally continuous or are they episodic? How does this work?
2: Well, in most patients, it seems that they're fairly intermittent and interestingly, some patients can go very long periods of time without having any symptoms and then they'll relapse for unclear reasons. In fact, we you know, we're trying to understand the natural history of gastroparesis as it has never really been studied over long periods of time.
1: And how are you doing that?
2: Well, the NIH has put together a Gastroparesis Clinical Research Consortium, which is made up now of nine different clinical centers, and one of its major goals is to create a gastroparesis registry where patients with gastroparesis are going to be followed for several years.
1: With or without intervention?
2: Well, with intervention, whatever it is, it really is just recording what happens to their symptoms, what actually happens to them over a period of time.
1: Well, I'm sure that most of our listeners have dealt with gastroparesis at one point or another during their practice, Is there a typical patient? Is there a gender dominance? Is there an age distribution? What can you tell us a little bit about the demographics of patients with gastroparesis?
2: Yes, absolutely. It appears that most patients with gastroparesis are female. In fact, some studies suggest there's a 7 to 1 ratio. And the most common presentation is probably those with idiopathic gastroparesis. And the typical patient is probably in their 30s or 40s. But there can be somewhat of a range in that.
1: Well, the term idiopathic comes to mind here. If it's idiopathic, we generally mean that we've ruled out other causes. When will gastroparesis be attributable to other disease states?
2: Well, the most common cause that can be identified typically is longstanding diabetes. But we also can see gastroparesis in a number of other settings, including the post-surgical patient. This is a person who's had surgery, for example, for peptic ulcer disease. We may also see it in people with collagen vascular disease or Parkinson's disease and also in people who have intestinal pseudo-obstruction. But by far, the largest group, it appears, are those patients who have idiopathic where we are unable to identify a systemic problem to explain why they have gastroparesis.
1: This seven-to-one ratio that you mentioned, that applies to the idiopathic or to all forms? Most of the diseases you mentioned have equal gender distribution.
2: Yes. It appears to be, well, at least in idiopathic and diabetic, that it is definitely female predominant.
1: And diabetic. So women with diabetes are more likely to get gastroparesis than men with diabetes.
2: It seems so, for reasons that are unclear. Why women seem to have a propensity for this is unknown.
1: Just review why people with diabetes might even get the gastroparesis.
2: Well, for a long time, it's been thought to be due to an autonomic neuropathy. But recent studies suggest that there are actual structural changes that may predispose someone to developing diabetic gastroparesis. The other thing I need to put in there is that we know that blood sugars that are elevated definitely delay gastric emptying. So we try to really keep our diabetics' blood sugars below 180 milligrams per deciliter. But with regard to structural changes, there are now full thickness biopsies. And in fact, one of the studies within the NIH Gastroparesis Clinical Research Consortium is to begin to analyze at a molecular level what the defects are in patients who have different types of gastroparesis. These patients are coming to surgery for other reasons. They're usually coming because they're getting a feeding tube placed, for example, or having a pacer placed. And in that situation, a full thickness biopsy is taken and compared to a control And in this situation, there have been a variety of structural defects noted, such as loss of interstitial cells of Cajal, for example, or other types of molecular problems, for example, loss of other types of neurons, or even the presence of increased fibrosis or inflammation. But it seems like it's a very heterogeneous group. You cannot say that all diabetics with gastroparesis have the same molecular problem.
1: What kind of symptoms do these patients present with? You mentioned nausea, vomiting, inability to eat.
2: Nausea, vomiting, loss of appetite. They may complain of early satiety. And, and actually, patients who have intractable reflux symptoms should be investigated to see if they could have underlying gastroparesis. But in addition, a, a very prominent symptom is abdominal bloating. So that can often be the first presentation.
1: Well, before we go on to diagnosis, I want to just remind our listeners, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to GI Insights from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Goldstein, and joining me today to discuss gastroparesis is Dr. Linda Lee, Clinical Director of the John Hopkins Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology Integrative Medicine and Digestive Center. Well, let's go on, Linda, and talk a little bit about diagnosis. Gastric emptying scans, commonly ordered?
2: Yes, that is still considered the gold standard for diagnosing gastroparesis, and it is the solid-phase gastric emptying scan that is typically done. One of the issues with gastric emptying scans is that they're poorly standardized across medical centers. So there are some centers that do only two-hour scans and other ones that will do four-hour ones. But it's the general consensus that the four-hour test is much more sensitive. And uh, what we're looking for there specifically is greater than 10% retention of food at four hours.
1: You specifically mentioned solid phase. What good is the liquid phase? Because many people, uh, when we order these tests, the radiologist's first question is, Do you want liquid, solid, or both?
2: Right. Our feeling is is that the solid phase is probably more sensitive. It turns out that liquid emptying is affected at very late stages of gastroparesis, so someone in the early stages may not manifest any abnormalities. So the solid phase gastric emptying scan is more sensitive.
1: Okay, very, very good. Is there any reason to ever order a liquid phase?
2: Not that I can think of for the purposes of diagnosing gastroparesis.
1: All righty. Well, that's very clear. Now, you intrigued me by telling us that the natural history of gastroparesis is a waxing and waning severity over time. Is that related to uh, diabetes control or why is the natural history so different than many other progressive and uh, worsening syndromes?
2: Good question. No one knows. So perhaps in diabetes, it might have something to do with the way the blood sugar is controlled because, as I said, there is evidence where the blood sugar, if it's elevated over 180, that that may actually affect gastric emptying. But in those patients with idiopathic, they also have waxing and waning symptoms, too. And some people have hypothesized that perhaps there's an inflammatory component that comes and goes. Though this has definitely not been proven, but it's an interesting theory.
1: Do people with gastroparesis have a higher incidence of diabetes developing later in life?
2: Not that we know of.
1: Okay. I know that making the diagnosis can be difficult, but we do have some standardization across the country. Let's turn our attention to management. What is the mainstay of management?
2: Well, I think the mainstay of management first is educating the patient. And the reason why is is that most patients have a very poor understanding as to what gastroparesis is, and that's understandable because we so poorly understand it. And patients need to have, though, dietary... Counseling because there are things that they can try to do when they begin to have symptoms. Because again, as I said, the symptoms can wax and wane. So when they begin to feel nauseated or full, one of the first things they should do is think about changing their diet. Obviously, they should eat a fairly low-fat diet because we know foods that are rich in fat content, they take longer to leave the stomach anyway. And in patients with gastroparesis, the consequences of that are more accentuated with regard to their symptoms. So, in my patients, I often ask them to eat a low-fat diet, and they also need to decrease their fiber intake and try to avoid raw vegetables and fruits, for example, the times when they are most symptomatic. Because, again, we know that those kinds of things are harder for the stomach to pass through into the small intestine.
1: Pharmacologically?
2: pharmacologically, oh, I was going to say that in times when they're obviously, you know, very nauseated, then moving fully to a liquid diet is advantageous. Now, pharmacologically, again, we're fairly limited as to our armamentarium. Pharmacologically, you know, there is metaclopramide, which is the only FDA-approved drug for the treatment of gastroparesis. So, our therapies are directed toward prokinetics but also using antiemetics to try to control the nausea. I will say that there is a subset of patients with gastroparesis who also develop abdominal pain and I think it's very important to avoid giving those patients narcotics at all costs because that simply aggravates the issue because we know what effects narcotics have on gastrointestinal motility.
1: Well, that's interesting. We know that uh, metoclopramide has been used. Are there other non-FDA-approved pharmacologic agents that are available either in this country or other countries?
2: Yes, probably one of the most popular is Domperidone, which works very similarly to metoclopramide, but has the advantage of not crossing the blood-brain barrier. As you know, the FDA just issued a black box warning on metoclopramide for tardive dyskinesia, and this is something you would not see with domperidone. Domperidone is available in 58 countries in the world And in many countries you do not even need to have a prescription to get it And it is so widely used And unfortunately it is not available here in the United States Unless you're working with an investigator who has an IND
1: I do know that people do cross the border to get it, is that correct?
2: They not only cross the border, they go to the internet and have it shipped in Or they have family members who send it to them from abroad
1: as long as we're talking about side effects of these medications, what other side effects do we worry about with opramide?
2: Well, there's the tardive dyskinesia that can occur with longer-term use. In fact, there are some studies that suggest maybe 20% of patients after using it for three months may be affected by this. Acute dystonic reactions can occur in up to about 6% of patients within 48 hours of starting it. And just in general, I have patients who complain that it makes them too sleepy to the point that they aren't able to function during the day. And so in those situations, I try to just simply cut back on the dose during the day. So instead of the usual 10 or even as high as 20 milligrams before each meal, I may suggest trying 5 milligrams
1: do you generally start at 10 to 20 or do you build up in most patients?
2: It depends on the severity of their symptoms. Often I will either pick 5 milligrams QAC and perhaps QHS and maybe go as high as 10. And then in a few patients, I've gone as high as 20 if necessary.
1: Well, I'd like to thank my guest from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, Dr. Linda Lee. Dr. Lee, I truly thank you very much for uh, being an expert here today and being our guest on GI Insights. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. You've been
0: listening to GI Insights on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. GI Insights is brought to you by AGA Institute. For additional information on this program and on-demand podcasts, visit us at ReachMD.com and use promo code AGA. Update your clinical knowledge and improve your delivery of patient care by registering for the 2010 AGA Clinical Congress. By attending, you'll learn from renowned experts in the field who will address the most relevant clinical issues in gastroenterology and hepatology. The Congress will be in Las Vegas January 15th and 16th with an optional add-on sedation course January 17th. Bring your nurse and attend this team-based course to obtain the essential information and hands-on training to safely and effectively administer sedation for GI procedures. Learn more and register today at www.gastro.org slash clinical congress. The American Gastroenterological Association is the trusted voice of the GI community. Our membership has grown to include 17,000 members from around the globe who are involved in all aspects of the science, practice, and advancement of gastroenterology. Discover what the AGA could mean to you. Visit www.gastro.org.